Welcome to the Clean Water Pod, a show about the challenges and successes in restoring and protecting water quality. My name is Jeff Perkis, and I'll be talking to dedicated professionals across the country to build an understanding of how policy and science work together to meet the goals of the Clean Water Act for fishable, swimmable, and drinkable water quality in our nation's waters. For the rest of this season, we'll kick off each episode by defining a couple of important terms with my colleague Sarah from the EPA. Sarah, welcome to the Clean Water Pod. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about starting each of these episodes with you and a little talk about some of the terms that we use all the time. We want to decode a little bit of this. So you're going to be on the rest of the season, Sarah. So why don't we start by just having you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work at EPA? Sure. Yeah. So I work for the Office of Water at EPA, and I'm excited to be on this podcast with you and just help explain some words that will be really important to each of these episodes. That's great. So this month, we're kicking off what we're going to be doing for the rest of the season. We're talking with Jennifer Weigel from Oregon and Thomas Mumley from California about programs that they've worked in for most of their careers, the Water Quality Standards Program. So I've always thought about the Water Quality Standards Program as sort of the headwaters of the Clean Water Act. So this is kind of where it begins. There are a couple of terms that were used by Jennifer and Thomas throughout the, my interviews with them that I think would be important for us to define to the listeners up top. And so I'm hoping that you can help us out with a little bit of that. So what terms do you think would be most useful for our listeners to hear definitions of before we get into the interviews? Sure. Yeah. So the first word is designated use. That's something that's really important for this episode. Uh, designated use is just a way of saying what we want to be able to use the water for as written in the state's law. So this could be anything from recreation, drinking water, supporting aquatic life, agriculture, industrial uses, etc. Um, and these designated uses are important because they impact what we need to do to protect our water bodies. So designated use, it's kind of like not all waters are going to have the same expectations for what we would use them for, right? Like that that's kind of what we're saying when we say designated use. There's there's basically a categorization of the things that we expect that particular water from, right? That That's what we're trying to say here. Right. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. What other term do you think is important for us to, to learn about before we get into this? Water quality standards is another important term for this episode. And water quality standards are the set of policies and calculations that describe the desired conditions of the water body, again, based on those designated uses. And then they set a threshold for the water quality conditions needed to protect those uses. Okay, so the designated use or the uses, that's basically what we expect out of that water body and the water quality standards are some sort of measure for how we tell whether or not we're getting that expectation met or not. And Sarah, just to be clear, designated uses are one component of water quality standards. Right, yeah, I, I like to think of it as a, as a threshold. Perfect. All right. Well, we'll get into the interview here with uh, Jennifer and Thomas and enjoy the conversation. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Um, so my name is Jennifer Weigel. I am the Water Quality Administrator at Oregon DEQ. I've been here at DEQ for about um, 14 years and I've always worked in the water quality program. Before that, I spent 
10 years working at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency in their headquarters office in, in Washington, D.C. How I got into this work, I, I, I was really fortunate. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest um, in a small town that um, really was at the foothills of a timber industry, was adjacent to a lot of um, really prime agricultural land. It was also a place in the state of Washington growing up in the, the 70s and the early 80s. Um, that was one of the remaining remaining locations of the bald eagle. It was a place where people would come. And at that point in time, it was um, their populations were so decimated that it was a rarity to be able to go somewhere and, and see bald eagles. And there's also a thriving uh, salmon fishery there. Um, I grew up near the ocean. I grew up near the mountains um, and always have had a, a great appreciation for water and and not until I became an adult and was able to travel more and talk to more people and really understand how fortunate I was to have grown up in such a, a special place, especially as it relates to water quality. And as I approached my education, thinking about college and what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, I um, and as I grew in that appreciation of of water and water quality and and what it means to people, it, it became evident to me that that was that was something I wanted to pursue in, in my professional life. So that's that's really where I started and um, landed in um, Washington, D.C. not long after I finished my college education and, and things just went from there. My name's Thomas Mumley, Mum Like the Flower. My entire professional career has been working for the state of California Environmental Protection Agency, specifically in the San Francisco Bay Regional Water Quality Control Board office which is the water pollution control part of the California Environmental Protection Agency focusing in on the San Francisco Bay region. I started work there after my academic career. I have a, actually have a PhD in chemical engineering from UC Berkeley, but I've worked at the, at the water board for, I'm now in my 39th year. The program that I know you from, working up from, was the Water Quality Standards Program. So that's kind of where you started and kind of worked your way up in your career? Yeah, that's where I started. I, I That was my first job at the Environmental Protection Agency. I worked in the Water Quality Standards Program and, you know, kind of started from only a really kind of more or less cursory understanding of what that program really meant. Here I am 24 years later, having had that opportunity to understand kind of you know, where the Clean Water Act starts, right? Um, what is it What is it that we're trying to protect? What, when we get down to uh, nuts and bolts, what does that mean to have good water quality? How do we measure it? Um, what are we trying to protect for? Fish, people, eating fish, being able to recreate. And that that's exactly where I started. That's where, exactly where I started my career with EPA. Yeah, I've kind of considered this program as the headwaters of the work that, that we uh, do. And so let's talk about the basics. You talked about it a little bit there, but how would you describe the, the building blocks, the, the big basic elements of what water quality standards are there for and how they impact down the line in the Clean Water Act? So that's a really good question. And, and when I talk about water quality standards, I kind of often start from a place of water quality standards express what we're trying to protect. Uh, so when we think about water and we think about how we interact with water and what it means for our natural environment, uh, we think about water quality standards. One is, you know, the, the, the answer to the question, what are we trying to protect? So 
we're trying to ensure we have happy, healthy, reproducing fish populations and um, other kinds of aquatic creatures can, can live and thrive in aquatic environments. So that's one thing that we're trying to protect, right? We, as people, we love to go to our lakes and our streams and our rivers and our oceans and our estuaries and, and recreate in them. How do we ensure that if you fall out of the boat and you take in some water or you, you um, immerse your, you know, your kids are jumping in and, and getting their heads all covered in water. How do you, how do you know that, that you're not um, uh, taking in some things from that water body that are gonna be harmful to you? How do we ensure that people can, can catch and eat the fish? in the waters and how can we ensure that for industries and, and some industries need really clean water um, in order to operate their various processes. How do we ensure that that water is um, clean enough to be used for all the different purposes that we have? So often in water quality standards, we think about, first of all, what are those uses? Uh, so again, protection of aquatic life, protection of human health, um, protection for recreation. And then we think about what are the pollutant levels and what pollutants are most relevant to protecting those types of uses. So when we're thinking about recreation, we often think about um, bacteria, harmful bacteria. When are we concerned about how much bacteria is too much bacteria for being able to safely recreate in waters? What pollutants are we concerned about finding their way into fish tissue and being able to eat fish? And how much do we need to ensure? And um, what are those levels where it becomes dangerous? Um, for either for in the water body or in the fish tissue itself. For sources of drinking water, what pollutants are we concerned about there? And when, when at what levels do we need to ensure aren't exceeded in order to be safely used for drinking water? So those are the kinds of things that, those are the kind of the, the when people think about water quality standards, those two components, what are we using it for? What do we want to use it for? And how, um, how do we ensure that pollutant levels are at um, safe levels to be able to do those things over time? And then there's other provisions that then talk about how do we ensure that over time, those waters, once once we've protected them, um, how do we ensure that they're not degrading over time? So there's a number of other components and standards that look at how do we ensure um, that with each new activity on the landscape or a new facility that discharges wastewater, how do we ensure and have a careful and thoughtful evaluation to ensure that those, those activities don't cause harmful levels of, of degraded water quality over time. And Thomas, what about you? Yeah, indeed, the water quality standards are essentially the foundation of what we strive to accomplish with implementing the Clean Water Act. Start, start with the, the premise of the Clean Water Act to make, make sure our waters are fishable, swimmable, drinkable. And it's, so water quality standards are essentially a way of stating what constitutes fishable, swimmable, drinkable waters, water safe for aquatic life. There are actually three parts of water quality standards in the formal context. The three elements are beneficial uses of water, water quality criteria to protect those uses, as well as ensuring waters don't degrade. And just to clarify, beneficial uses, designated uses, they're synonymous in this context. That's some, those are interchangeable words. So would you say that in water quality standards arena that there's been a lot of progress or are there a lot that is left to be done in terms of setting some of those limits that you talked about? I think in terms of where, where, water, qualities have, where water quality standards have gone, uh, definitely been a huge amount of progress. 
I know here in Oregon, we establish standards and, and pollutant levels not to be exceeded for around 140 different pollutants, which is a pretty long list. Um, as many people know, there's a whole lot more chemicals and out there in commerce and being used in our, in our everyday products. So it's not exhaustive by any stretch, but it does cover a lot of the most important and uh, relevant pollutants. Um, that said, when we look at how, what we understand about watershed processes, how water bodies function in various geographies through different soil types, um, whether they're estuaries or oceans or mountain streams or lakes, um, wetlands, um, there's a lot of complexity on the landscape and some of our remaining environmental challenges are similarly complex. And so I think that's kind of the space where a lot of our water quality standards challenges sit, sit right now is how do you think about some of these complexities and design a program in which um, is both reflective of those complexities. Also knowing that systems, watersheds are really complex and dynamic. Um, here in the state of Oregon, you know, the, the climatic cycles are very different than they are in Florida. A lot of our water supplies are very cyclical. We're, we have we have snowpack and then we have snow melt and then we have rainy seasons and then it's dry here for most of the summer. And so we have lots of fluctuations due to that. And by, by virtue of that, the water chemistry changes over that time. And so how do we design standards that acknowledge there's this natural variability and fluctuation that we wanna to continue to protect and facilitate and design regulatory programs around. And at the same time, knowing that we wanna ensure that we're, we're also um, doing um, as little damage as we can from all of our human activity that's occurring on the landscape. And so how do we measure that? And how do we set up a regulatory program with standards being at the starting point to really reflect that? And it's very challenging when you think about things like, um, you know, we're in the Pacific Northwest, we're very concerned about cold waters for cold water fisheries like salmon. Um, how do we think about that on a, you know, on a, when something like that changes seasonally, how do we think about nutrients where they're going to vary significantly from headwaters to, um, to the, to the um, mouth of rivers? Um, how do we think about all those things in a way that we can design reasonable, practical, and implementable regulatory systems using that as a starting point. And I think that's really the, that's that's the complexities that we're dealing with now. And we've got drought and climate change on the horizon, which is just adding another layer of complexity for how we design these systems to think about continuing to do, um, protecting and maintaining water quality, but yet keeping an eye out to, you know, really a, a changing environment. So the priority pollutant list defined a set of parameters that EPA wanted to define something specific. And then did they do it? Yes, it, 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 it took time, but in, it, starting in the, as early as the late 1970s, but through the, the 1980s, e, EPA began publishing water quality criteria for various pollutants on that priority pollutant list, which, which is... 102 pollutants was it i've lost track of the number i meant to look that up jeff but it encompasses various heavy metals various types of of uh, petroleum hydrocarbon type compounds but it's it's 100 plus compounds and over time through the 1980s epa published the initial uh criteria and then have subsequently improved on some of them as the science has improved over time. So essentially at this point, 
uh, it's somewhat of a legacy issue because there are water quality criteria for all those originally designated priority pollutants. And for the most part, all, all states have either adopted the EPA criteria or established their own equivalent or more stringent. So that has been a major driver for water quality protection and control in the in, in over the last 40 plus years to the point where we've pretty much have can claim mission accomplished in terms of establishing the establishment of those standards and the implementation. So you talked about defining how we use waters, which is very important to understand what the expectation is for, for each water body that you're looking at. What would you say from a big picture perspective, not just in Oregon, but across the country, what would you say the biggest accomplishment in the first 50 years of water quality standards would be? Is it getting a pretty comprehensive list of initial water quality standards on the books or something else? That is a big question. I think um, I think one of the things that we've really been able to do under the Clean Water Act in the first 50 years, I would say in the early decades, just getting kind of baseline expectations around oxygen demanding pollutants from, you know, from municipal sewage treatment plants and getting a kind of generally accepted level of control that's needed in um, waterways was was huge in the early decades of the Clean Water Act. And also getting some real basic expectations for industrial facilities and similarly to kind of get a baseline level of control around those. But also, you know, water quality standards play a big piece there because then how do you how do you know at the end of the day if you're controlling those pollutants from those facilities, how do you know what it's doing in stream? And that's where water quality standards come in is to be able to understand what's happening in streams over time. As we look at, at data and information around the country, those are not the biggest issues anymore. There's still significant challenges there. Um, and those are things that people are continuing to work on. But those um, that kind of major, major obvious um, source of pollutants um, is no longer the focus. Other areas where we've continued to make really significant progress is really understanding how we incorporate really watershed processes being able to reflect those in standards. And I think there's there's definitely been some big leaps made there in understanding that water isn't the same everywhere. And so how do we think about and differentiate and tailor, at the end of the day, tailor our restoration efforts and our protection efforts in a way that are reflective of those hydrologic processes and, and kind of natural systems that watersheds are. And so I think that's really been more more some of the excess successes in the last couple of decades is really kind of setting up that new kind of framing in a way that helps us think about that. So for example, we know, you know, not all flooding is bad and we know that not all we uh, have excess sediment, you know, excess sediments in the water. Well, sometimes that's just the natural processes of the stream. So, if, and also we may see nutrients in stream in certain kinds of years or certain types of water bodies, and that's not inherently bad, but how do we tailor a system and how do we create a system where we really are using the science and knowledge um, around those things to be able to uh, ultimately protect water quality in kind of a, uh, a way that's reflective of nature. So you've had a, a really great career in that you started with EPA and then you're now with the state. So you have this really interesting perspective that 
you know, not that many people have. There's plenty of people that have worked for both, but it provides you with this really great perspective of the federal and the state. And so you've had this really cool work experience and career so far. And so I'm curious, what would you say are one or two of your biggest personal career success stories, projects that you were part of that you're particularly proud of? Um, and they could be. Oh, that's a great that's a great question, Jeff. Um, gosh. I think I think one of the things that that I was able to do, two things that I was able to do in my career that I um, am pretty proud of. One of the first things I did when I came to the state of Oregon, I managed the water quality standards and assessments program here. I started working on a project that was already in flight, and it was looking at our uh, criteria for toxic pollutants to protect human health and which included the consumption of fish. And there was a process that had been started before I arrived that was working very collaboratively with EPA region 10 based up in Seattle, in particular the Umatilla tribe here in Oregon to think about how do we reflect our tribes um, consumption patterns. Uh, many of the tribes here in the Pacific Northwest have a long history and to time immemorial of eating large quantities of fish. Um, and out here also things like lamprey eel, and depending on where they're located, may also be consuming large amounts of um, coastal shellfish and fish. And so how do, we, how do we incorporate that? How do we think about that as our waters that we share with the tribes? How do we incorporate that? And how do we work not just within our state and carrying out our state responsibilities, but meaningfully engage with communities, and in this case, other sovereign nations like the tribes in developing our water quality standards. And so it was a, it was a real um, early both uh, opportunity to engage in a project like that, but also to, to learn from the tribes and to be able to have that collaborative experience so early in my career here in Oregon. Um, ultimately, we did adopt water quality standards that did reflect the tribal tribes consumption patterns based on data and information that they had collected and that were available from other sources. And we were able to bring that into our process. Um, and that was just a really rewarding um, project. And I learned, I learned a ton um, in so many ways um, from that, both from a policy perspective, from a regulatory perspective, from a collaboration perspective. Another, another great project um, that I had the opportunity to engage in is, was Oregon's adoption of, of, a regulatory framework for water quality trading. Um, so Oregon was one of the first states that adopted such a regulatory framework. Um, we spent a lot of time collaborating with a lot of smart people who knew about, you know, how, what those opportunities were. We'd had some water quality trading that had occurred in Oregon before adopting these rules. So we had some experience to draw on, um, but it was a really, a really great opportunity to think about how do we get meaningful on the ground results that again, provide benefits, not just because of what's coming or not coming out of a pipe, but because we actually achieve kind of landscape level improvements that are good for water quality, but also good for habitat, are good for stream function that have all these great benefits. And um, it's kind of, you know, when done, when done in the way that we, we, we've laid out, we think, and it provides a framework for really kind of having some win-win outcomes um, for permitted facilities and um, for water quality and, and watersheds as a whole. All right, Thomas, if we go down the coast to California, what about you and your career? What would you say? 
one that direct relates to water quality standards that I was personally involved in, and, and, and it, it's a good illustration of how we can apply the rules in a smart fashion, particularly if we are able to bring more better science to the table in, in our regulatory realm of things. So the, the story is about copper in San Francisco Bay. So in the 1980s, EPA uh, established uh, water quality criteria for copper in fresh and marine waters. And my organization then is part of the state responsibility to either either adopt EPA criteria or establish its own that are that are protective. We had the challenge. We had a challenge of establishing the, those criteria as state standards, not knowing how attainable they are and knowing that they potentially could have a, a significant cost impact on our our municipal wastewater discharges to the bay because of it could potentially require advanced treatment. But what we ended up doing using the standards process, and this is somewhat of an advanced dialogue about how standards are implemented, that we working with in partnership with the with the Bay Area municipalities who are willing to put substantial funding on the table above and beyond what the state had or what was available from federal assistance to do extensive monitoring of copper in the Bay, doing further studies of the basis of the EPA criteria and their relevance to San Francisco Bay and species in San Francisco Bay. And we were actually able to uh, generate a water quality standard in the form of a criteria for copper in San Francisco Bay that was protective and very quite confident in the the scientific integrity of that that protective number that was also re, was attainable by our dischargers and so we so the fruits of that effort needs levels in the bay are less than they were when this started and without creating a a consequential financial uh, challenge on our our Bay Area community, so it's a sort of a win-win. The Bay is is better off relative to copper, and we did it in a in a smart way. You know, bringing in social, political, economic factors in addition to the science. So the so that's that's a poster project for how we can if we can work collaboratively in the regulatory arena with with the pub, public interest and and. Uh, entities responsible for 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 our utilities there's lots of possibilities one of the things that you mentioned there that i'd like to kind of follow up with here is uh, the idea of collaboration with other people and other interests and getting multiple people to the table and just how important it is in this work to be successful is that it really does come down to people and it comes down to understanding where either a landowner is coming from or you know a, a, a community group uh, you know the friends of this watershed or friends of this lake you know type of group there's a lot of people element to this work which is based in science and policy which you might not expect there to be that much people and, and collaboration and so what have you learned from that perspective as a scientist coming up and working for through government how, how much have you found yourself in situations where the success of a project is really based on the collaborative element here i think it comes up so often i won't say 100 percent of the time but i think it's i mean at the, at the end of the day people are, are are what makes the work happen um i know 
personally, I feel, and, and I, I think I just said this to somebody this morning, I learn something new every day. Um, and I feel like whether it's, whether it's I'm looking at other staff that work for DEQ, whether it is, you know, local government, whether it's community organizations, whether it's landowners, um, every, everybody, there's so much expertise and knowledge out there that everyone benefits from the sharing and the learning and having that sort of a mindset going into a project. I think anybody who thinks they're expert in everything is probably not going to be as successful as those people who, who really kind of enter projects and enter conversations with a bit of humbleness and thinking that, that there's always opportunity to learn, learn from others and where people are given the opportunity to share their knowledge and share their understanding and their expertise. Um, one, they're gonna, I think people just like to be valued uh, too. And if that's done in a sincere way and people are um, able to take that information and make a better, make a better decision, develop a better regulation, write a better permit, you know, have a more informed uh, understanding of what's possible and practical if we're talking about restoration efforts. And I think everybody, everybody wins at the end of the day. And I, um, you know, ultimately working for a state government, there's only so much we can, we can do at the state government. We rely on at the end of the day, other people are the people who are, whether it's planting trees or engineering new treatment systems or making decisions about you know, what activities or, or new businesses or industries are located where those decisions don't happen at the state state level. And the better we understand what goes into all of that and how decisions are made or what can influence those types of decisions and the better regulations and the better outcomes we're going to, we're going to have um, at the end of the day. So when you're sitting at that table and there's all of these different interests that are there, and they're looking to you to explain a water quality standards topic. What are some of the best ways that you have been able to describe your work in a way that's understood by everybody that's sitting around that table? So often when I talk about water quality standards, I do try to think about, depending on what I'm, what aspect I'm trying to explain, I'll often you know, think about sun, you know, some pollutant that people are somewhat familiar with that they can visualize not some unpronounceable chemical that nobody knows what it is, but something like, hey, uh, copper, right? Um, or nickel, uh, people are pretty familiar with what that means and that generally those are, those are things that while they might be around in trace environments are generally things we don't wanna see in the water body. Um, so, you know, talking about that and talking about it in, in kind of simple, simple terms. And if we're talking about how a water quality standard works, I'm, you know, you might say something like, well, take for example, uh, mercury. You know, if it's if it's in if it's in the water at, at very low levels, say uh, one one gram per liter or whatever the you know, throw out something that's pretty simple and talk about well then you know, the food chain effects and talking about how it can be consumed and ultimately when the big fish eat the little fish, this is over time those big fish end up with a lot of mercury and those are things that we. Um, nobody wants either them, themselves, their neighbors, their family, their children to be eating at those levels. And this is, and this is why, this is how it happens and try to explain how, what are those watershed or ecosystem or food chain effects, try to be able to explain that in the simplest way. And then kind of what the consequences and why it matters um, what we do so that at the end of the day, 
us or people that 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 we love or our neighbors with, you know, what it means to them at the end of the day. Those are generally ways that I try to think about that. And then, you know, often it sometimes it's hard for people to grasp exactly why they should care about these pollutant levels that we sit that we set that, you know, we go out and, you know, dip our dip our measuring devices in there and run through a laboratory analysis. Like why what what's what's the meaning of all of that and what does it mean at the end of the day? And often it usually takes talking about how some of this gets translated, say, into a permit or into a watershed restoration effort for people to really understand why it matters that we have those in-stream goals in the first instance. Right. If you say bioaccumulation, scientists around the table are going to understand what you're talking about, maybe nod their head. But for the most part, that's not going to be something that most of us understand off the cuff and aren't going to make that connection because it's just not a word that we work with on a daily basis. So it's it's important that we, we talk about this in plain terms so that everybody can understand what we're talking about and the importance of the work that's going on. Exactly. And so figuring out, you know, most of us remember from our, whether our high school biology or even maybe our middle school biology, you know, having to draw the food chain, right? Uh, you know, the little bugs are eaten by the bigger bugs or eaten by the small fish. And people can understand that over a lifetime of meals, whatever's in those smallest bugs and insects ultimately are what make up that big fish, that big long lived fish that is, that's eaten thousands of meals over its lifetime. What are some of the best ways that you have used those phrases, analogies, whatever it is, what are some of the best examples that you have to communicate water quality standards topics to that audience? Both an easy and a difficult dialogue. Because the, the easy part is everybody wants clean water. And so when I, when I would tell friends or family that I, that I work for our, the name of our organization is Water Quality Control Board, uh, they're impressed because I can literally say my job is to protect San Francisco Bay. And, and, and so that's, I feel really fortunate to be able to say that nuances and the complications about how that plays out. That's the challenge because the public at large tends to take for granted the, the enormous infrastructure associated with what was required to actually attain and protect good water quality. Um, inevitably, when uh, when I mention what I what I do through the years, people automatically ask, well, uh, how good is my drinking water? And they're concerned about what's at their tap. And I explain, well, that's not, that's part of what we do overall, but we, we think we, we are engaged bigger because we are as I explained, our job is to make sure that our source, our water, the sources of our drinking water are as clean as they can be. So the drinking water is safe. But uh, that's, that's why I also use points about we want to protect fish and wildlife that, that thrive in our waters. And as we, and so I explain that, trying try to keep, keep it simple because again, the challenge is people are interested. They want to know that they're, that the, the waters are safe to swim in, to drink. Uh, they can eat the fish. Uh, I guess what's rewarding is people really are very supportive. But every chance I do get, and say I consider this is one of those chances, is talking to the public at large, is to challenge ourselves, myself, as well as you. Think about what do we do that that may have an impact on water quality. Clean water starts at our front door or in, in our house and in our activities. So to bring that 
to bear uh, in, in that interest. Water quality isn't uh, isn't going to be realized by somebody else. It's going to be realized by all of us being part of the solution. So that's that's how I like to talk to my friends and family to the extent they're willing to listen to me to to challenge them to be a, a picker upper, not a throwawayer. And so that's episode two. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Jennifer and Thomas as much as I enjoyed speaking to them. Join us next month for episode three as we talk about water quality monitoring. I've got a couple more great guests lined up for you to learn about that program. If you have any questions about this or future episodes, please get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at cleanwaterpod or send me an email at cleanwaterpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, what questions you have, and what you'd like to hear on the pod. Until next time, thanks for listening.